Ladies and gentlemen, okay, so welcome to the Emroid Digest podcast. I am your host, Chuma Obineme, PGY6 fellow at Emory University. I'll be holding down the fort alone today uh, without my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown. Wish him well. Um, so if you're joining us for the first time or a repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews within the field of gastroenterology and hepatology and discuss the more salient points using clinical cases. So today we have a great episode for you with um, uh, Dr. Arnold Walls um, for the University of Wisconsin. And we're going to be discussing the uh, ACG guidelines on benign anorectal disorders. But before we get to the show, uh, so we are literally on the heels of what was an incredible conference in Charlotte, North Carolina, hosted by the the American College of Gastroenterology. Um, And I had a blast, you know, it was great. I met people who, you know, expressed their love for the podcast. But if you love the podcast, show us. How do you do that? Leave a review, like, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell the whole world how much you like the show. Um, and as as usual, don't just listen to this podcast. Download the guidelines, read them, and employ them in your clinical practice. Uh, with that, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Emroid Digest podcast. Uh, I have a great guest for us, uh, Dr. Arnold Wald, uh, and I'm going to give him a short introduction. Uh, so Dr. Wald is a faculty member of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology within the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, he was named a master teacher in gastroenterology by the State University of New York Downstate College of Medicine Alumni Association. He is a past recipient of the University of Wisconsin Department of Medicine Graham Meyer Teaching Award and has received two outstanding clinical educator awards from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. He has authored nearly 150 peer-reviewed journal articles and nearly 150 book chapters, reviews, and other publications. He has also served on the editorial boards of 10 national or international journals and has been on several Best Doctors in America's list multiple times. Uh, Dr. Walls, welcome to the show. Well, as you know, I'm happy to be here and uh, to talk about anything ain't a wackle. Or anything beyond that, too. I, I do have interest beyond that particular point. Okay, that's fair. Um, Well, we are going to get to some anorectal (laughs) disorders, but first, you know, um, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is really try to get to get get to know our guests a little bit better. Um, You know, and and the reason we kind of put this podcast together is really to celebrate and applaud the authors of these guidelines because we know they're not easy Um, (laughs) and they're sometimes they're really long. And I know it's arduous putting them together, so. I think we just want to start by saying thank you uh, for, for putting it together. Yeah, uh, these these are laborious things. And, and I was really beginning to wonder whether they would be published uh, posthumously, in my case, or <laughs> would I still be alive when they came out? So 
I'm very happy to say that I'm I'm still alive and, and healthy. It is a lot of work. It it, it is. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess I'm curious. Um, I guess maybe we'll start from the beginning with for you. You know, how did you get um, how did you get involved with medicine or like how did you get down this oh. track? Well, you know, I'm the uh, I'm the first member of my family to go to college. Um, not the last, but, but the first. I was the oldest of three. Um, and I always had an interest in being a doctor. I'm not sure why that was. It seemed to me a worthy pursuit to help other people. It would be stimulating. Um, and, and I sort of almost viewed it as a kind of a priesthood, if you will, um, being able to, to, to bring care and so forth to that. So that was my feeling, but I'd only been exposed to just, you know, family doctors and private practitioners. And of course, it wasn't until medical school that I began ex to be exposed to the academic side of medicine and what it had to offer. And that what's great about medicine is that it has so many pathways that you can take depending on your interests and your affinities and things like that. Um, I was in my third year of medicine uh, when I rounded my, my teaching attending was a gastroenterologist and I sort of was had a little hero worship because I think he I thought he knew everything and he probably did. And so I said, well, you know, that's a great field. I, I think I'd like to go into gastroenterology. So when I was done with my training in medicine and then I spent two years in the army uh, practicing medicine as a, in the in medical corps during the Vietnam years. Um, I, I then went to, to Johns Hopkins to study gastroenterology. And there I was exposed to a whole different kind of exposure that I'd had because there were people there who were doing meaningful research and were well known in their fields. And I, I, feel, I felt like I wanted to try academic medicine. Uh, not just the research, but the teaching as well as the clinical care. And, uh, and that was a very formative time because um, I think I learned how to do research at least. I certainly learned how to write. Um, and not that I pursued my research area, uh, although my research had been productive, but it convinced me that I did not want to become a laboratory animal, that I really wanted to practice and teach and to answer questions, but answer questions on a human level and a clinical level based upon what was I seeing. And so that, that, that's really how I evolved to becoming what I think was, a, a, I guess, a, a, what do they call a clinician educator? Uh, I used to say uh, uh, triple threat or something like that. I don't know what that <laughs> means, but that's uh, <laughs> what uh, and that's how I evolved. And so when I left my fellowship, um, I, I was I had been prepared to ask questions. And that's really where my career took me thereafter. For some people, I think teaching can be a daunting task. Mm -hmm. um, how do you approach teaching, let's say, on, on the wards? Like, how, how do you try to mm -hmm. or... Yeah. You know, in any clinical setting, like what's your approach with well, learners? Well, I think there are two overall philosophies about training. We use the term training because that's what we're doing. One is information-based. 
how smart are you? How many things do you know? How many differential diagnoses can you spill off? You know, the genius, these people. Now we have a little instrument, so we don't need to be that kind of genius. But the other important is process. And uh, I think that at Hopkins and, and other places, the emphasis was more on process than information. How do you size up a patient? How do you break down the problem? How do you ask the right questions? If you ask the right questions, you should be doing the appropriate tests. The test should answer those questions or not. And then you can plan a management approach. And of course you need information. You have to have knowledge about that. But the process I think is more important because I think facts change. <laughs> they have over my lifetime in, in medicine. But I think process is the, is the key, is, is how do you size it up? And it, it's kind of like research, isn't it? You have a background information. You ask a clinical question that you think needs to be answered. How do I answer that question? What tests can I do? What kind of research could I put together? Uh, what do I do with the data? And, and how do I transmit that data to other people um, so that they are accepted to journals or accepted by my peers and so forth. And so I think the process of both clinical, particularly clinical research, but any research, and the practice of medicine, the teaching of, of medicine, really go hand in glove. And I think each helps the other. To know the clinical side is to understand what the issues are, to know how to put a research project together and make it meaningful amplifies that. And then hopefully you bring new knowledge or additional knowledge to the field. And you get smart when you do that because you have to research everything. You have to know what you think is, has been answered or not answered. Many times I've done projects where I think I didn't believe what I had read and I set out to decide if that's the case. And so no one gets more knowledgeable than the person who does the background reading, presents the lecture, has to be prepared for rounds, um, you know, has to present their, their data and so forth. And so I think it, it comes a growth um, and a development that amplifies each other. Yeah. By the way, you meet a lot of smart, interesting people along the way outside of your institution. And... You learn a lot from them, you know. They <laughs> they yeah. often come to it from a very different angle, and really helps in a great way. Yeah. And that's really so what I focus on in teaching is the process. So I'm curious. Um, you know, I'm actually a, I'm a Baltimore native. Actually, I went to University of Maryland uh -huh. uh, School of Medicine. Yeah, for med school. Um, you know, more on the west side than the east well, my, side. <laughs> my, my wife was there in, um, who trained in pediatric infectious disease and was on the faculty wow. at Maryland before we went to uh, Pittsburgh in 1978. And so while well, I was at Hopkins, she was at Maryland, and then we both moved to Pittsburgh, of course, because she's a pediatrician hmm. and uh, a very successful pediatrician, I might add. One of my one of my mentors, actually. <laughs> I was actually going to get to mentorship because, yeah. you know, it sounds like at Hopkins, you know, it sounds like it was just a very formative experience for you. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, what did you learn from the mentors you had about mentorship or, you know, how did they 
you know, mold you as a, as a you know, researcher? Well, you know, they, they gave me the format. They had done work in this area, and the idea was to answer an additional question. So you have to master what had come before you, and you had to learn the area pretty well. And then, of course, you had to do the assays or the experiments that you had to do. And I think what I learned there was um, how to ask questions, uh, how to review the data, um, how to be prepared to explain the data and why you're going in a certain direction, and then how to put your words, your, your, your findings into thoughts. And probably Dr. Hendricks, who was my chief mentor there, the, he was the head of the division, he was the original head uh, at Hopkins, really taught me how to write how to put my thoughts. I remember my first efforts at writing and he would, it was all red lines. And so, <laughs> um, and, and then it would turn out to be a very polished thing that wasn't really walled. It was, it was Hendrix and big one, but that's what it taught me. So it taught me how to organize my thoughts and how to express myself. And then the other thing it taught me was to be available. So I had done a project with another faculty member and, I was putting together this paper. It was not a great paper, but it was a clinical paper. And I couldn't get this fellow to go over my stuff. So I went to Dr. Hendricks and I said, would you mind doing this? And the next day he has completely looked through the article, made changes and so forth. And I said to myself, here's a, the guy didn't even participate in this rather low-level paper, I might add, it was on my <laughs> but he was there, and he and I and I said, you know, I'd like to put your name on uh, the paper. He says, no, 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 that's not necessary. He says, that's my responsibility is to help fellows, and so I learned there that if someone gives me something to review, I do it quickly and I do it thoroughly, and I get back to them. Uh, I don't leave it waiting for a week or a month or something like that. And, and he sort of taught me that discipline. He didn't say that's what you do, but you saw what he did and then you appreciated it. And, and that was very helpful. So the, the, the two, Dr. Bayless, who was the other GI attending, was also helpful because I did work with him, a different kind of person. And I would say that those were one of the, two of the more formative mentors in terms of teaching me how to do research, how to be critical, how to be skeptical, actually. Right. Not cynical, but skeptical. I mean, don't tell me your thoughts, tell, show me the data type of thing. Mm -hmm. Or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't really know that I can believe that if, because of X, Y, and Z, do you think we could answer that question? So skepticism is always important uh, when you're taking care of patients or you're reading the literature or you're certainly writing a paper. Don't believe everything you read and be curious. I think curiosity is the key here. Super um, important. A lot of people who just take received wisdom and not evaluate it, Maybe because they haven't been taught how to do it. They haven't engaged in research or didn't have those kinds of mentors. And I think that helped to formulate my approach and what I tried to impart in, in, you know, down the line to the people that I train. Yeah. So then, um, you know, I'm curious, how did you get involved with anal rectal 
disorders. It's yeah. it's not necessarily the the flashiest, you know, concentration within GIs. So yeah, how did how did you yeah. get involved? So my my first job after fellowship training was with Marvin Schuster, who was at um, what was then Baltimore City Hospital. It was a major affiliate of Hopkins, but it had its own fellowship and, and so forth. And that was his interests. And I had, you know, really been working in the upper gut. And after three years, I, I didn't do anything with him, but I, I looked at some of the things that they were doing and I thought that they could be answered in a different way. But it sort of piqued my interest because of the physiology and so forth. And, and so that became one of my initial areas to really look at that and to measure it in, in ways that I had, don't think had been measured before to answer those kinds of questions. And then once you have that tool, then you can ask questions of patients that you're seeing and so forth. Uh, um, and, and so I got into a lot of areas that most gastroenterologists might not work in, you know, neurologic, neurogenic injuries, uh, some work with children. Um, but I haven't done only anorectal. If you look at my CV, you, you see there's a healthy smattering of that. But I've probably done colorectal would be my area. But then I've also worked in the esophagus, the stomach, just about everywhere in the hollow organs when I was, was interested in asking questions. And, and so I was always taught to focus, be research narrow and clinically broad. And I think that I was probably research broad and clinically broad. And, um, <laughs> but, but it was fun to answer those questions, whether it was gastric emptying issues or it was small intestinal issues or even esophageal. Um, and, and that's really how it all evolved. Um, and, and, and that's been pretty, pretty much the case. Yeah. But there are obstacles that one can face, and, and I think the more focused you are on what you want to do, um, that you can overcome that. I, I think you should never underestimate perseverance. Of all the things that will make you successful, I think perseverance is probably the key in anything. Hmm. And yeah, there are always going to be bureaucrats and administrators and other people who might get in your way, but you know, you just keep yourself focused and, and, and do what you enjoy doing. And uh, I certainly never expected to do all the work that I did or write all the things that I did and stuff like that. Uh, but it came, you know, hmm. and, and it's been great because I met a lot of interesting people along the way. You meet those people, then you start doing collaborative work, learning different aspects and that, that's sort of how you grow also, is, is working with people on guidelines, for example, or in the Rome um, group where we did a lot of stuff there. Um, yeah, or, or co even co-authoring chapters and other papers and so forth. You, you, you really, is a lot of what I would call bi-directionality when you're doing that. And that's why I think it's nice if when you're done with your fellowship training, is to try to take a broad view and be active in organizations. Um, and what, whatever interests you, it could be education, um, it could be administrative, it could be research, it, it could be any number of things. 
but but it's nice to have a wider a wider experience than just more of a parochial one where um, you know many people just get trained they go into practice they might attend the meeting but you know they they don't really have a, a broad view of GI which I think is valuable and with that, I feel like we should jump into some cases. Okay. And yeah. maybe we'll get into some some path of fizz because we got to talk about the guidelines. Um, okay. So I feel like we should just, we could just dive right in. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. So uh, let's do it. So, so we're going to do case number one. Okay. This is a case of a uh, Miss Kisher. Uh, she is a 54 year old woman. She's really got no past medical history. Kisher or Miss Kisher? <laughs> <laughs> I have hearing aids, you know. I'm right, exactly. quite cool what you said there, but I think that's a hint. <laughs> uh, she's got no past medical history, but she she actually came to you because she wanted to schedule a colonoscopy. Okay, delving deeper into her history, uh, she reports she also has rectal pain. Um, it comes on suddenly, randomly, can last for a few hours, and actually dissipates on its own. But she also notes her defecations have been painful as well. Um, she says no abdominal pain. She feels like it's coming from her rectum. I'll stop there and just, you know, put it to you. I don't, what are your thoughts? What other questions are you going to ask her to sort of yeah. delineate what's going on? So I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that there may be two independent issues here. The pain on defecation, and if you ask them specifically, do you mean like you're passing razor blades or broken glass, is very characteristic of an anal fissure, um, which could come if she had constipation or large bowel movements. And because the fissure sits on the squamous epithelium, which is not the rectum. Rectum doesn't have that kind of pain, but the squamous has the sharp pain, the pain. So when she says that when she defecates, she has severe pain, I'm beginning to think that maybe there is something like a fissure. But the other part of the story is where she has these rectal pains, which sort of come and go, but last several hours makes me think that there may be something else going on and, and the differential diagnosis of anal rectal pain or pelvic pain is, is broad and particularly in women. Um, but if we wanted to stay in the GI end, um, you might be describing um, uh, what we would call a chronic rectal pain uh, and, and that could be broken down. It's not Pactaldrafujax, because Pactaldrafujax, when it occurs, generally doesn't last more than five or 10 minutes, comes and goes. Whereas what you're describing is pain that's lasting for several hours or more. Uh, and that would be consistent with what, again, we would call chronic rectal pain. And that will be divided into patients who have the so-called evader syndrome, and the other will be the nonspecific now, that doesn't mean that she couldn't have another source. Um, there's a lot of things in that rectal area, you know, uterus, bladder, other tissue there. So in assessing her, you're going to want to see whether any of those things can apply. Are there, is there pathology? 
are there findings that lead you in one direction or another? Um, does she have urinary symptoms which give her pain, or is that not affected? Is she constipated? Does she pass large bowel movements? Is it difficult for her to pass large bowel movements? Has that been an issue? Because she really is coming just for the procedure, but you might think that there's something behind it, and it might be that these two symptoms are that. So that would be my first uh, consideration. And what she really needs, of course, is a good examination, including a rectal exam. We don't do vaginal exams as gastroenterologists, but um, she, she would need an assessment of that, including a good rectal examination under the appropriate circumstances. And then, of course, she should get a colonoscopy. And I'm not sure that the colonoscopy is going to answer everything. So she tells you that, you know, this pain has been ongoing intermittently for the last five months. Um, she does have constipation maybe three to four times a week. She has to use Miralax, but it's usually well treated with that. Um, no UTIs. She actually has no children. Um, and that's kind of how she feels in her history. Right. Uh, so you, I guess, inform her that she needs a rectal exam, and she is hesitant mm -hmm. um, yeah. how do you how do you talk to patients I guess how do you talk patients through the need I guess this patient through the need for a rectal exam and then what precautions do you take as a physician as a male physician you know prior to performing a DRE well any rectal examination of a woman and and some patients some of us feel for a man sometimes also really has to be chaperoned so we're going to be, if you get to do that procedure, you're going to have to have a chaperone in the room, not, not the spouse or not the friend or anything like that. The second will be is that when you do ask her to do a rectal exam, it, I always phrase it with your permission. So she has to give permission. She, but she has free will and she can decline it. So now in order to reinforce it, the question was, why do I want to do a rectal examination? And the issue is that that's where she's having symptoms. And there are things that we can find on an exam that we might not found with an x-ray or a colonoscopy or certainly blood tests that would be excellent to, to determine. And that's kind of why, in a sense, why she's here is because she's having these symptoms as well as the colonoscopy. Generally, in that setting, most patients will agree. There are patients who will turn you down, uh, but sometimes young patients, but sometimes middle-aged. And I often find there are many reasons, um, embarrassment, but there are some patients who um, have had sexual abuse in the past involving that area, and it just triggers bad emotions and you just are not going to overwhelm that. It would be too traumatic for them. So you take what you can get. Um, sometimes they'll allow you to do a, um, an examination by inspection without digitizing. Um, and if you're going to do a colonoscopy and there's a great deal of problems, you can probably do it at the time of colonoscopy if you're just not superficial about it, as most people are. We're just sticking it in. Oh, yeah. Let's go, and, and we can talk about that. So in general, people don't have that problem. What I'm always surprised to find 
is how many patients come in with complaints like that and have never had a rectal exam, not by their primary doctor, not by their gastroenterologist, if it's a referral and so forth. It's almost as if the, the rectum is sometimes, oh, that maybe it's the colorectal surgeons or um, it's like the pharynx is, oh, that's an ear, nose, and throat problem. And, and, and yet it's a very important, simple, but can be very valuable um, uh, examination to do. Even in children, um, although, again, you have to be very careful with that. I don't see a lot of children, um, but it can be done. And yeah. we've written about that, about the need to do that. And I think sometimes they don't get the exam because the practitioner is uncomfortable. They feel that they don't really know the examination, have been trained in it the right way. And I think it's often bi-directional. And the patient and the practitioner, oh, yeah, well, well, I'll do a colonoscopy. And, you know, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. So, so let's say, so in this case, you know, you explain the reasons why. And she's okay with you proceeding with uh, mm -hmm. digital rectal exam in office. Um, I guess because we are, you know, we're concerned about proctalgia or, you know, levator mm -hmm. ani syndrome. So how do you, I guess, walk us through, like, how do you actually do the rectal exam from start to finish? And, you know, like, you know, how do you position the patient? How do you actually palpate the puborectalis muscle? How do you, you know, differentiate it from other structures that are in the rectum? Well, most colorectal surgeons and some of my colleagues believe in that knee chest position. <clears throat> it gives you the best exposure of the anal rectum. Um, but I generally do them with the patient on their side. Um, I think I can get enough information uh, there that I need to have. <clears throat> so like anything else, you start with the inspection. And in this case, you're looking for anything irritation, any, um, uh, oh, it could be hemorrhoids, it could be skin tags, it could be even a, a carcinoma or things like that. And you also want to spread the buttocks. And in this case, you know, you found a fissure. <clears throat> an anal fissure. So if you find an anal fissure at that point, which is painful, the question is, should you proceed and, and do a full digital exam? And as a rule, I don't. At that point, I'll say, look, this is gonna be painful if you're awake. I know you have a fissure. I don't have to go any further. I don't know why you have the fissure. We'll talk about fissures. But it may be too painful for me to put my finger in there when you're wide awake. And we can do it when I do the colonoscopy or sometime. You could try to put some lidocaine ointment on that to numb it and see if you can get there. But at this point, you're going to have one of your two diagnoses, which is the fissure. And it probably explains her defecation difficulty. So... Well, what, is, what if, for example, she didn't have a fissure? Maybe she mm -hmm. just has um, a perfectly normal, yeah. So now what you really want to do is to do a digital examination, which is going to try to elicit why she has the pain. So I generally do it, again, with the patient on their side, generally the left side down, knee chest. And um, I'll start with the digital exam, and I just put that inside the anal canal about a centimeter or two, because I want to measure the tone of the sphincter. 
And the tone is going to be largely internal sphincter and a little bit of external. If tone is good, fine. It's very important if you're having continence that the tone is not good. And then, with my finger in that position, I ask the patient to squeeze as if they're trying to withhold. And you can feel the external sphincter grab you, and you can pretty much assess how strong it is and whether it can be sustained. And if you haven't seen a fissure, you might also, as you put your finger in there, elicit a lot of pain. And even without seeing it, you can be sure that there's a fissure but you just haven't seen it on the outside just because of the configuration. Now, assuming that's okay in this kind of a case, because this is not incontinence, then you move your finger in uh, further and you orient that finger, bottom part of your finger toward the coccyx posterior. This is key because the puborectalis muscle, which is part of the levator muscles of the pelvic floor, is a strap muscle and only has one connection and that's to the symphysis pubis. So there's a connection and muscle wraps around the rectum, bladder too, um, but the rectum here, and it inserts there. So if you're gonna feel the puborectalis, you're only gonna feel it laterally and posterior. And you could run your finger right around that, left, right, center, to, to make out what the muscle is. and to elicit tenderness. So for example, in doing that, the patient complains of a lot of pain or discomfort, let's say on the left part of the puborectalis. You should start thinking about levator syndrome, which is another name for pain probably caused by tension of the puborectalis muscle. Then when you, once you've done that, then you can ask the patient to squeeze again. And what you wanna feel is that muscle pulling forward, and that will give you a sense of how strong it is. Can the patient contract it? And, and it'll give you a much better definition of, of that. So now you've done that, and of course, in the digital exam, you picked up any masses or other kinds of things. And then, particularly if you're, and we'll talk about defecation disorders, then you then ask the patient to bear down as if to empty the rectum. Tell them nothing's gonna happen either because there's no stool there or because your finger is bonding. And you can feel that puborectalis muscle relax. You could feel the perineum descend a couple of centimeters. And you can feel the anal canal relaxing as well. That's normal. If the patient does that, but simultaneously contracts the sphincter or the puborectalis, now there's a good chance that you may be dealing with what we would call dyssynergia, right? rectoanal dyssynergia. Mm -hmm. Bearing down hard enough, but simultaneously you're contracting or not relaxing those muscles, and that's where you're going to meet that barrier. And that's all that a rectal exam, that can be accomplished in one minute, maybe two. And while you're doing that, particularly when you're asking the patient to bear down, is to put your, your other hand not the one in the rectum, the other hand, on the abdomen, and when they bear down, you can feel that they're bearing down on generating pressure. Do you have diastasis rectum? Do you have a hernia? Or sometimes you just have a lot of pain, and when they bear down, they can't because it's painful to hurt. 
And that's what, what you we call is inhibited defecation. The patient wants to bear down, but it hurts. You're not going to do something that hurts. So they don't press down very hard. And that's another reason for defecation disorders is the inhibitory aspect. When we talk about defecation disorders, it really can come in different amounts. But now you've done a very quick exam. It is not painful if done correctly. You use a lot of lubrication. And you try to keep the patient and yourself relaxed. Um, if you want to, with a man, fine. I don't generally get a chaperone for a man, but, you know, there's some people who are, you know, um, concerned that way and, uh, you know, uh, but certainly a, a, a woman uh, should be a nurse, uh, could be a medical student, could be, um, if you're teaching a, a fellow and so forth, best with the fellow because they can see how to do it. And that should be part of the training program, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, that was uh, that was excellent. I really I really enjoyed actually how specific you were with going through each part of that. Yeah. Um, so okay, so we're because gonna go it's, a, it's an exam for all reasons, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of it relates to defecation. Some of it relates mm -hmm. to incontinence. Some of it relates to pain. You know, but you can do the same examination and, and get all that information if you want. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to go down two different trees. We'll go down mm -hmm. the anal fissure mm -hmm. tree, and then we can go down the levator um, ani syndrome tree. So we'll say, I guess maybe we'll talk about anal fissures. Let's say in this case, you know, a woman who's got mild constipation, you see this fissure, tender to touch. Um, what's your next step management-wise, if that was the only thing you were doing? Oh, as I read, I think, um, th where was the fissure located? Uh, I think at the 3 o'clock position. Okay. So this is, this is important. Most idiopathic anal fissures are found in the posterior portion that is on the coccyx portion, the vast majority. The second most common place is the anterior portion. In other words, the X, Y axis, if you want. Um, and they generally are caused by trauma with a large, hard bowel movement or something like that. When you see a fissure that's not in those locations, you have to be a little concerned that this is not an idiopathic anal fissure. And probably for gastroenterologists, the, the most First thing you might think of is Crohn's fissures. Because when they occur in that lateral portion entered at the three o'clock position, that's very atypical. And it, it should at least in your mind bring up the possibility that this patient has another reason for her anal fissure. Crohn's number one, but there there are other things that can cause that as well. So that's that's something that you've got to keep in mind. Um, you might elect to treat that fissure because maybe you're not going to do a full exam quite yet as you would for a regular anal fissure but in the back of your mind you're going to really make sure that you can exclude something like Crohn's disease so yeah if it's just an office exam you don't want to put your finger in there further for the levator thing what you're going to do is treat the fissure um, we'll talk about that and then you'll do a colonoscopy and maybe when you're doing the colonoscopy, 
even perhaps before you sedate the patient, you might then, and hopefully with the fissure, hopefully heal, you can then do the interior examination to look for the things that we talked about, the levator muscle, the tendinous, and so forth, the evidence of dyssynergia, if, if it exists, and so forth. And then, of course, you do your colonoscopy, and one of the things you're going to be looking for is Crohn's. And we know that Crohn's can present in many ways, but, but patients do present with perineal and perirectal Crohn's and isolation. So that would be foremost in my mind. And of course, then you're dealing with a whole different issue as that. So the, I think the take-home point for this is anything that's outside of the midline, posterior, anterior, should raise at least the possibilities that you have another cause rather than idiopathic anal Yeah. And then if you're, uh, I mean, let's say, I mean, I guess if you, if you're thinking about medical therapy in this case for anal fissure, I know, I know you guys typically, yeah. I think was recommended like calcium channel blockers. Okay. Tiazam and so forth. Yeah. So, so, um, You'll read a lot of articles that say that nitroglycerin or nitrate paste um, is used. And that's true, they're in the same class. But the feeling is that, that nitrates give you more side effects like headaches. So our approach is to use, um, we use diltiazem. And you can add a little bit of a lidocaine that and if you're mixing it up. Sometimes you have to have someone compounded, which we do. Not all pharmacies will, but enough do. And so the, um, the the lidocaine will take care of the pain a little bit, and the diltiazem is designed to relax the internal anal sphincter. Because what happens in an anal sphincter uh, fissure is the muscle goes into spasm, as it would. That's what's going on. When it goes into spasm. It cuts off the blood supply, particularly to the posterior part of the anus, and that's why they often don't heal. Mm -hmm. So by re relaxing the sphincter muscle with diltiazem cream, um, you hope to promote blood flow, which promotes healing and so forth. And I think the literature, the literature is not great on this, but probably you can expect about 60 to 70% healing, and we give it a minimum of four weeks to work and sometimes eight. Now, if you, if you just see an, uh, an anal fissure that looks like a scissor cut, and it's just like that, that's an acute fissure, and it's probably gonna heal very quickly with, with very metamucil, softening the stool, um, that kind of stuff. If you see that there's some rough edges around it, or it's deeper, that probably implies that it's a chronic anal fissure. And which you would define as something that lasts longer than eight weeks. But that generally indicates chronicity. And that might go along with her history. If she wasn't fine, all of a sudden one day she, she's uh, having bowel movements that feel like broken glass. So if you have an eight chronic anal fissure, I think you're going to give a four to eight week trial with six baths, metamucil, softeners, uh, and so forth. And then the diltiazem cream. And we'll see if they get better. If they don't get better within four to eight weeks, um, you're probably looking at intervention. Um, we looked at the data, um, and we didn't see anything compelling to say that Botox is any better 
Botox into the internal sphincter would be any better than the nitrate, nitrate cream. Some people use that primarily, and of course, Botox temporarily relaxes that internal sphincter, but it is an injection, and you want to get it into the internal sphincter, not anything, any place else. And our surgeons generally don't use it, and they feel that um, the trial, and, and that's what the literature implies, and, and we came up with our recommendations, that nitrates are probably, whether it's a calcium channel blocker or um, some people even give it by mouth, although I, I think I would rather give it directly onto the, the area. And then if you can't get that healed, and the patient's still painful, we're really looking at intervention. And literally, that's going to be a lateral sphincterotomy. So what you're going to do is cut the sphincter laterally to relieve the, the spasm and tension to allow the fissure to heal mechanically. Um, and if you have a good surgeon, a careful surgeon, there shouldn't be a major problem with incontinence because you're really not touching the external sphincter and certainly not the pubic talus. If they make too vigorous a cut, well, now if you have a Crohn's fissure, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and, and there in lies, it's, it's the same thing with Crohn's tags versus hemorrhoids. Um, you might want to snip off a hemorrhoid, but you do not want to snip off a Crohn's tag. And I, I've seen it happen with surgeons who go really no, and it can be a disaster. But that would be the sequence, and the literature is very robust when it comes to lateral sphincterotomy. It, it's uh, considered the, the treatment of choice of, of any procedure uh, that there excellent. is. Yeah, excellent. Just a good so, surgeon and a careful surgeon. A good, careful surgeon. So in this um, case, what, what I'm doing, again, we'll treat that, and then if if, and we can talk about levator syndrome. Right. That's where the colonoscopy go. is going to hopefully rule out Crohn's disease. Right. Yeah. And, um, and if the fissure heals, despite its location, then we can probably say, well, it's one of those oddball fissures that you come across. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, okay. but, but I, I try not to do a deep rectal examination once I find an anal fissure, it's too painful. And the diagnosis can be made visually. Yeah, yeah. And then, so what about, so I guess let's go down the levator ani syndrome. Let's say um, in a patient, yeah, you were able to palpate the puerectalis tenderness. Um, I guess talk to us about maybe the importance of anorectal manometry uh, for, for these patients. So if you feel clinically that you have what we call chronic anal rectal pain, <clears throat> and you've excluded other diagnostic possibilities. Um, and it, we see it mostly in women, but not exclusively. Then the digital examination is looking for one important thing, and that is, is there a tenderness of the levator muscle? If there's tenderness of the levator muscle, we then can infer that that's the cause of the pain. It's got spasm, it's, it's not a muscle disorder. But something is causing it to spasm and be tender. And we think that that's probably the origin. If you don't find levator tenderness, then we call it idiopathic anal rectal pain. And there's no room for manometry in that particular thing. 
if you find Levator syndrome, there's one good article which we cited, a well-done study, that looked at the role of anal rectal manometry in these patients. And there were two findings that, that came out of this study, well, four findings. If you have Levator syndrome and you see what we would call a dysenergic pattern on anal rectal manometry, um, and, you know, pressures going up and they should go down and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These patients did seem to do well with biofeedback to correct that. None of them really had constipation or defecatory problem. So presumably the idea here is that somehow you're relaxing that puberectalis, whatever is doing that, because the findings were pretty robust. Uh, and I think the response rate in that group was about 80% and durable. If biofeedback couldn't correct that, then treatment failed. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. If, if you did the patients who had no levator tenderness with manometry, it didn't make any difference what it showed. Manometry was not going to be helpful. So in, in, in chronic pain, anorectal pain syndrome, the role for, based on one excellent study, well done, uh, suggests that biofeedback of a, a dysenergic pattern is helpful. Now that study also looked, had a placebo arm and it also looked at digital massage. And while digital massage was a little bit better than placebo, it didn't come anywhere near to the biofeedback. So digital massage is something that's been practiced for many years there's really no evidence to support it. So we would say in that instance that biofeedback would be the treatment of choice only if the manometry is abnormal. <laughs> okay. Right, yes. Now, is there any way for people who are not familiar with biofeedback therapy, this will be my last question for you, can you, I guess, can you like simply describe it? Like, what do they actually do, and what are they trying to achieve? So, another term, and of course, biofeedback has has broad, <laughs> broad definitions, and that's what gives it a problem for a lot of reimbursement people. So, we don't use the term biofeedback. We talk about muscle rehabilitation. <clears throat> that seems to get past the the insurance companies. But, but, but in essence, it's a question of, of, of feedback in order to perfect something. So the classic thing is, uh, I'm going to teach you how to throw a ball and hit a target. So I'm going to say, here's the ball, there's the target, and I want you to throw it. And you might miss the target a few times, but then you make changes in your throwing motion and so forth until you're hitting the target with some accuracy. Once you do that enough, and the basketball players will tell you this, you can blindfold the person and I'll hit the target. Right? I mean, they don't have to see where the basket is. If they're going to do this over their head, they know where the basket is, how high it is, and so forth. But when they're learning, they have to see it. Now, let's say I took the same individual and I said, I'm going to teach you how to hit this target, but I'm going to blindfold you and throw the ball at the target and see what you can do. And so they throw it, and I said, well, no, that didn't do it. Try it again. And he teased, well, with no feedback as to where the ball's going, they can't make the adjustments. 
So all biofeedback is in this situation is to make a recording that they can see, sometimes here, but to see, and see what they're doing, tell them what they should be doing, and then through trial and error, have them modify that until they can now duplicate normal. So if they see that pressure going up in the rectal manometer, well, um, no, you can't do that. You've got to make, make that pressure, keep it down, and then they can try and experiment until they find a way to do it. And once they can do it, and they can do it repetitively, they don't need the machine anymore. So it's machine-assisted learning using, most cases, visual feedback. It's not this, you know, um, I'm going to make my blood pressure go up or down or something. That's, that's hard to do. So this is called muscle retraining, and you need an abnormality. You have to show them what it is, and there are various ways to do it. But most success will come from physical therapists who know how to do the training. That's critical. And many physical therapists are just working with muscle tension or doing, doing this stuff, which is not really getting at the, at the problem. But you can also show that they're not generating enough pressure because the rectal pressure is not going up when they try. And you could try to have them do something to try to elevate that pressure. But the key is feedback. Tell them what they're doing wrong, what they should be doing right. And then if you have a, a patient who um, wants to do it and believes that it'll help, it, it can be very effective. Um, and we also use that technique, although I'm less convinced of its efficacy in fecal incontinence. But I think the major role that I think is having the availability of a pelvic floor therapist who's trained in the way the literature has been taught to do that. And then you need a machine. It could be a small machine. It could be a home machine. Uh, but it needs to be a machine to do that. Yeah. And that's what biofeedback is. But remember, call it muscle rehabilitation. Fair enough. Yes. Uh, Which it is. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so, Dr. Wald, if you can, we're going to have to leave it there. If you can believe it, I know I had two other cases. Um, so, how? So, for people who are, you know, interested, I guess, in anorectal disorders, interested in your work, um, is there a is there a website or uh, they can follow you? Or do you have social media? What, how do they follow you? Well, one of my colleagues, Lisa Jones, um, joined us about three or four years ago with an interest in this area. And what she's done is she's devised a course that we are using with our fellows where they take a two-week rotation in this and they see patients, they'll maybe work with colorectal surgeons, they learn how to do the exam appropriately and, and what to do with it. And she's put together a nice course um, that the, the fellows seem to enjoy, whether they're going to make use of it. But at the end of that time, they have some knowledge of what's going on because our fellows, like our faculty, like everybody else, really have very little knowledge about this area. So I think if, if you, she would be an excellent person for you to get in touch with. And I can give her your name. Um, because she has a, a slide, she's created a whole thing for education. 
And um, I think she's working with one or one or two other groups to try to make it more universalized. It's a nice course. Um, but it, it re- involves some hands-on from someone who's done it, but um, I think that's what we need to do. She's, she's also working on one of these um, machines, you know, where you can do virtual examinations. This is how it feels, this is what you should look for, and so forth, like the surgeons do. And, and that's being developed, although I don't think it's ready for prime time. Um, just to get the what what is a normal, what is high, and, and yeah. doing that. It's kind of a neat thing that she's doing with the bioengineering people at our place. So she should be an excellent font of information for you and, and maybe something that you would want to pursue either at Emory or um, if, if ultimately you're in your practice or uh, even getting a, a, her thing where she can teach you the, the basics of that. Um, it's not rocket science, but it, it, it is a very badly overlooked part of our training and um, you would think that gastroenterologists would have some passing interest in this, but it turns out that they don't. <laughs> and and well, they're taught, and, um, and, and you're right. Um, sometimes the only exam is one that's done the night before a colonoscopy. And the patient's asleep, and you're just sort of making sure that you're not going to run into some kind of thing, a roadblock with your, with your scope. But it's not really the, the good way to, to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Wald, this has uh, been incredibly informative. Uh, for our listeners, um, please, please, please read these guidelines. They're incredibly extensive, and I think they've been really helpful for my practice. So, uh, yeah, so this is us signing off from the MO Digest. Thank you. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the IRC the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast and specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.